0: Coming to you from the city of the weird Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Well, hello everybody and welcome to tonight's live episode of the curious realm, hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody has had a great and revelatory week uh, today. Actively marks one of the one of the fantastic, beautiful, amazing days in my Cajun culture. Lesier le bonton temps roulé, everybody! If uh, you are out there, if you are a Mardi Gras out there doing your thing, there's a little bit of Mardi Gras from my family's hometown of. Mamu, Louisiana, where they chase chickens for community gumbos, things like that. So, uh, that is some footage that I put out many, many years ago from Mamu. Uh, man, I love that town. I have not been there in years and Mardi Gras is the time to go. So if you are out there, if you are Mardi Grasing right now, everybody, you be safe. You take care and remember what it's really all about. It's about the sacrifice of what's coming up. It's about the sacrifice for community, things like that. What it, what it took those good rural people to get through the winter times. Um, and that is some of what we'll be talking about with our first guest tonight is possible uses of america's stonehenge was it was it a marker site was it a calendar what what are all the astronomic alignments about dennis stone is our guest in the first segment we will be discussing his family's property also known as america's stonehenge i have been there it is one of the coolest sites that i have been to here in north america um Amazing structures there, really cool stuff. We will be talking about his family's uh, coming to own that property and what it has been like to not only explore that property as a kid, but explore that property as an adult and get into the science of it and and some of the things that they have discovered. In our second spot tonight, after our break, we will be joined by Keith Sealand, uh, he is a good friend that we met at Mufon Symposium a couple years ago. Uh, he is the author of the Humaniverse series. We will be discussing with him, uh, petroglyph messages, petroglyphs from around the world, specifically those here in the American Southwest, uh, some in the Northeast as well. And, uh, we will also be discussing a lot of what his Humaniverse series is about, which is, are we even worthy of the extraterrestrial conversation? Would, would, would ETs even stop at, at Earth? Or, or would it be that scene from the meme image that you see all the time, or as they go by, they're locking the door of the, of the UFO as they pass by Earth? You know, would, are, are we even worthy of that interstellar conversation? So we will be getting into that with Keith Seelan in the second part of the episode. In this first part, America's Stonehenge is a pre-Columbian site in Salem, New Hampshire, that has baffled people for generations. I mean, generations, people, even whenever the, the locals moved to the place, whenever colonials moved uh, and found the location, they asked the local native tribes, like, what is this thing? This is a massive complex. What What did you guys build it for? And their response was, we didn't build that. That was here when we got here. So welcome back to the show. Dennis Stone, how are you doing, my friend? Oh, hi,
1: Chris. Uh, doing very well. Thank you so much for having you on this evening.
0: It is always a pleasure having you on. I always love our conversations. Uh, your property out there in Salem. I mean, number one, that area of New England is near and dear to my heart. Uh, but in addition, that area that you live in is just so bespeckled with building structures, uh, archaeoastronomic alignments. Uh, how did your family come to be in possession of this unique property now known as America's Stonehenge, Dennis?
1: Yeah, so um, almost 70 years ago, um, back in 1955, my dad, uh, Robert Stone, uh, was listening to a radio show that he often listened to on a Friday night. The radio show was on one of the largest stations in New England, uh, right out of Boston. And the name of the show was Yankee Yarns. the uh, talk show host of Alton Hall Blackington. And my dad listened to the show, you know, for a number of years, but this is the first time he ever heard this particular subject, and the topic was all about these strange stone ruins uh, in southern New Hampshire. And what really surprised my dad about the show is the site was located in North Salem, New Hampshire, and he lived in the town of Derry, and Derry is the town next to North Salem. So he lived about six or seven miles away from this site pretty much his whole life and had never, ever heard of this site. Um, coincidentally, a few uh, days later at a barbershop, he was uh, waiting to have his hair done in the same town of Derry, New Hampshire. And while he was waiting, he picked up a magazine, he opened it up and he started thumbing through it and he got to an article that looked kind of interesting. And as he looked at it a little closer, he realized that what the article was about was the same site they had heard earlier that week, but it had pictures. And so it kind of blew him away. You know, it's like, wow, twice in a week about this pretty Interesting, uh, very strange sight. Um, he then asked the barber, Hey, can I keep this or borrow it, the magazine? And the barber goes, Well, how old is that? He goes, Well, let's see. It's, oh, 1952. It's three years old. It's been sitting here for a while, apparently. And he goes, Just take it, take it home with you. so that weekend uh, at my aunt and uncle's in the same town, about 10 people get together on Saturday nights. So it was pretty traditional for our family. They would play cards, have some beers, talk, socialize. Um, And at one point during the card game, my dad had the magazine with him. So he just took it out, he showed it to everybody uh, at the table playing cards. Nobody, you know, knew what the place was, just like my dad. Until he got to my aunt and uncle, my mom's uh, sister and her brother in law. And when they looked at it, they were quite surprised, and they remembered, and they said, we were there 20 years ago in the 1930s. We used to go there on our bicycles while they were dating, and they would ride seven, roughly seven miles down there, and they would picnic up on the site. And at that time, uh, the site was not open to the public. Um, There were no signs, no visitor center. And you just had to know where the place was, I guess, you know? So the next question my dad asked is, can you find the place? And they said, well, it's been two decades. Um, We can give it a try, but, uh, you know, it's been a long time. That Sunday, the four of them took off in a car. They went down the road and drove around North Salem for a little while trying to find this place. And eventually they saw a road that looked somewhat familiar to them. They took a chance, parked the car on the main road there, and then they walked up the hill about a half a mile. And when they got to the top, they were pleasantly surprised they found the right place. And there were all these ruins right in front of them. So, my dad uh, actually, uh, the curiosity uh, got the better of him. He decided to try to climb under a uh, six foot fence with barbed wire on top. And the fence is still oh, there wow. today. It was actually put up in 1937. So, he climbed under it uh, into the ruins, <laughs> disappeared for quite a while because there were a lot of brush and trees. You couldn't really see him walking around in there. And once he came back out, you know, he said, This is just simply amazing. And, uh, he also mentioned something about maybe getting involved with research because he was really interested in that kind of thing. And he mentioned, well, maybe we could purchase it, open it to the public, you know, and uh, open it up as a museum, you know. And because my mom's response was something about you got rocks in your head, you know. So yeah, uh, yeah. she wasn't too keen on the idea, I guess, you know, because we had a new sheet. I was a baby. I had a sister on the way and they had just built a house. And my dad had a new job at AT&T. Bell Labs is an engineer. He had been in the Coast Guard prior to that for a few years. So and he just went to college, too, at the same time. So it's like, you know, he was night school, you know, college. So he thought he was nuts <laughs> to pick what? up something else, you know.
0: And, and you know, um, mm. you, you kind of have to be in your own right to to be self-employed to begin with, Dennis. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. There, there is a certain type of mania that you have to have to you. In order, in order to do that, much less to take on a project the scope of this. And when, once your dad purchased it, um, how long before things started getting uncovered, before y'all started uh, really discovering the scope of the uh, – because you're still uncovering the scope of the project.
1: <laughs> yeah, it never stops. We actually – that's a good question, Chris, but the work had actually started in 1937 by a gentleman from Hartford, Connecticut, uh, an insurance millionaire, William B. Goodwin. And he was an antiquarian. Uh, he had lived on the West Coast. He had lived in uh, Kansas City, as a matter of fact, uh, at a bank. He worked at a bank. And then he got involved with uh, insurance. His family were basically Edgar and Phoenix, I think, insurance companies. And when he got out to Seattle for a while, uh, they could have been in charge of a uh, You know, uh, an office there. And he did so well setting up the office that uh, they moved him to San Francisco. And um, he had married his wife from Seattle just before he left there. He was involved with the University of uh, uh, Washington, the the, uh, football team, uh, the athletic club. Um, And he actually panned for Golden up in the Yukon, too, for a while. But he was also managing that office. They liked what he did. He went to San Francisco. He was there for a while. And he left because they moved him to Columbus, Ohio. And when he left, the earthquake in 1906 happened. So I think he was very fortunate getting out of it because he was an insurance, you know. Uh, But interesting enough, in Ohio, he would go out and map some of the mounds. Ohio at one time, about 10,000 ancient mounds, about 90 percent of them are gone today, uh, due to some natural causes as well as development, highways, buildings. And he would Golf go out courses. and map the locations, and he did that for about 15 years. So I believe his work is still in the archives of Ohio, and that got him fascinated in the ancient past. And he moved back uh, to Hartford, retired in 1931, was involved with a museum called the uh, Wordsworth anatheum an early American antique collection that he put together, actually much earlier than that. He did it back around 1900. And he did it with his cousin, J.P. Morgan. So the Morgans and the Goodwins were one family. So, But Morgan died in 1913, so he had nothing to do with our site. Um, by 1936, he was getting involved with stone structures elsewhere in Massachusetts. Mm. Um, and he was aware of some in a couple other states. But he eventually learned about our site. And when he came up in 1936 and saw Ross site, he was like my dad. He was completely blown away by the site. And he ended up purchasing the site in 1937, and that's when the archaeology began. And he worked in the site for a number of years. And um, he actually got involved with a couple other New England sites after Ossite site was first, and he worked up in Raymond, New Hampshire. He worked in Hoptington, Massachusetts, where the Boston Marathon starts. There was actually mm. structures there, too. And uh, the Upton Chamber in Upton, Massachusetts, and a couple other structures. And he knew of about 16 different structures by the mid-1940s. And he wrote several books, The Truth About Leif Erickson, The Spanish Gold, because he used to go to Jamaica all the time. Mm. And when he vacationed in Jamaica, he was looking where Columbus landed. on. Uh, he had four voyages, and he was uh, looking for Columbus's, I forget if it was the uh, first landing or whatever it was. And he turns out he was correct. And then he wrote a third book, and in 1946, he wrote about our site and some of the other 15 sites, and the book was called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England. So this is his fourth book, and by that time, he was very sick. Uh, He died in 1950, so when they put the book together, he was quite ill, so he had some help on that last book. But it talks about our site, and um, again, about 15 other sites.
0: And this is where the connection of quite a few of these two, what are known as beehive structures, Specifically exactly. in, in Ireland and things like that are, uh, are tied to and, and what they, what they believe they may be. Now, it, what's curious is that there, there are parts of the complex that are a complex, um, that, that you can go into, like, there is a, there is a part, um, just below and, and, Back here, you can see this little raised part with the ground on top. Um, and you can, you can traverse this area, but, but there, are, there are only a few spots like that within the complex. There are numerous nooks, crannies, things like that, that you can climb into, uh, much like this, but exactly. they, they yeah. aren't connected to anything larger. It's, it's interesting. It's all, it's almost like they're used for sighting or something along those lines, uh, which there are numerous and tons of, uh, archaeoastronomic alignments to this location. So let's, let's start getting into that a little bit. Here's an actual lidar of the property, folks. Uh, there are, The actual alignments, at least as of a few years ago, this was given to me whenever you first came on the show about three, three and a half years ago. Dennis, so uh,
1: that's, um, that's correct chris yeah that goes back uh the gentleman came in from connecticut he bought a lidar he's a landscape architect with a master's degree but he got into lidar just a few years ago and he bought a fifty thousand dollar handheld unit and he was doing some work he's out of connecticut in southfield connecticut wonderful guy um so he decided to do this as kind of a second career i guess paralleling his landscape architectural uh work and um uh, so he asked us if he wouldn't mind if he came up in a did scan did some scans and what you see there is the result of him coming up several times uh carrying around that lidar on his back like a backpack and walking around the site and he had uh, some back issues too you know which has been corrected recently thankfully he had a little operation um but anyway he scanned about th- uh, that's 16 acres there we have 110 acres that hasn't been scanned and that's covered with structures walls serpentine walls and other features but that right there took 600 hours of computer processing to do all the data. That's pretty intense, you know. Um, and he's done sites from here all the way down to Pennsylvania and actually was in Belize with a friend, Jared Murphy. Uh, I got yep. you know, connected up, and they're going to be working on some Mayan ruins in a yeah. great big 7,000-acre development, and they want to preserve the ruins, and he's going to be doing more. And I am hoping to join him down because I'd love to help him and spend a couple of days down there Same. where it's warm. Well, he's already been down there once to – kind of do a little reconnaissance on the property. But that there is 50, that's about 57 alignments for the sun, the moon, and stars, all kind of uh, superimposed over the red of the walls. That's the, some of the wall patterns uh, on, the, on that 15-acre pot, you know, in the middle of its domain site that you were showing different structures. So, yeah, someday in the future, um, and because the technology keeps improving and everything, we might do the other 90 acres. We really should at some point. But he is out there doing other sites all across the Northeast and elsewhere. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's pretty are, cool
0: technology. And there mm. are numerous standing mm. stones mm. like this one right here on the property. This is not the main alignment stone, but this is uh, one of them that the sun rises over, the moon rises over. Even whenever I was there on property uh, all of a few months ago, Um there, there was a there was a, an alignment that I showed you for the moon that it had just passed, uh, within right, like twenty four exactly. forty eight hours. Um, that it's it's remarkable to see the number of alignments that are there where it's like it is, um, it's it's just it's not coincidence, you know, right. and it's yeah, it's exactly. not, Good it's point, not random yeah. happen happenstance that. These stones are carved the way that they are or that they are standing the way that they are in the location that they are.
1: That there is a winter solstice, and that's pretty typical of uh, some of the alignment marker stones, kind of arrowhead shaped. And they mm. were part of the bedrock at one time, like most of the slab work removed from the bedrock and then shaped using a technique called percussion flaking, you know, stone against stone. And if you look at the stone very carefully, you can see a little dimpling on it where they were actually shaping what we call dressing the stone. Mm. But it's like a gigantic arrowhead. And some of these actually go up to about eight feet in length. Uh, that are aligned with the sun, moon, or stars. You know, they're pretty significant. Uh, oh, excuse me, because My dog. That's broken. okay. I no apologize. worries. No worries. It's live. Dogs are dogs. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, but that alignment. uh dog. Oh, Scott. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. I had to walk okay. away in a room upstairs with my wife, but she must have let him up. Um, I can get him quieted down there. For uh, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little yeah, embarrassing moment you know, there. Sorry.
0: That, that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly okay. Once again, if, if yeah. he would be a bad dog if he didn't bark at things that were strange to him. You know, well, he does bark
1: um, at. She does bark at a lot of things on, on, that on out there. I don't know what. Maybe there's ghosts out there or some well, other paranormal uh, stuff going on. I think, but uh, that's well, a nightly occurrence, by the way, and that's why I put him in a room with my wife. And I think she let him out of the room. But that alignment, Chris, actually. Uh, I was just talking to the gentleman today. He's in France. He was uh, with us from 63 to 68 uh, through high school and into college. He graduated as a nuclear engineer. But he uh, opened up that alignment starting in 1965. He did it by hand, and then he borrowed a neighbor's chainsaw he just told me recently. He goes to France for the uh, the whole winter season, his wife's from there, and then he comes back to an island up in Maine, your, uh, your old stomping ground. She's on an island yep. there. For the rest of the year, you know, during the summer and fall. And he visits us because his kids actually live close to here. But he opened that up. Yeah. In 1960, 70, uh, 60, 70, he took the first photographs. And I did not know that until about three years ago. He goes, Dennis, I got 67 photographs. Wow. Because I know in 1970, I saw it for the first time uh, with my dad, a neighbor. We drove down. In the winter, with over a foot of brand new snow, we met him at his folks' house. Hmm. He had just come up from uh, Newport News, uh, Virginia. He was working on the Nimitz. He's one of the nuclear engineers that put the two reactors on that ship. Oh, wow. If anybody's uh, follows the UFO thing that listens to you, uh, you know, the uh, David Fravor, the Tic-Tac, uh, ufos that was with the nimitz in the princeton and so i told him that he got a kick out of that too because he was one of the guys I, that put the two re- he goes every 26 years you have to refuel that ship and it's still out there sailing today you know Yes. Yeah. um but uh we met him at his folks we walked up through the uh, woods. he had built a wooden snowmobile believe it out of pots he's so talented he built as a kid wow. out pad wheel boats he did all these crazy things which actually took a lot of talent to do it's kind of Cool. And we followed him up and then we saw the sunset for the very first time. But he had actually taken pictures three years before that. And he just sent me the photographs, I think, two years ago. And there are faded Polaroid, I think, pictures of the very first sunset. And that's where it all began back in 1965, wow. clearing it. Mm-hmm. And so almost six years of astronomical work you know, on the site.
0: In some of these stones, Dennis. Once again, like you were saying, eight feet. Like uh, that is that is a massive stone standing there. Um, to erect that, to keep that erect, to put it into the ground, to be that way, is an undertaking. Um, even it, even by yeah. modern standard, that's a that's a that's a day's worth of work. You know, um, yeah. it, it, with modern tools. Uh, and when you start looking at some of the other stonework at the location, specifically the serpentine walls, things like that, where it's like, um, it's, it's not like a lot of the stone walls that are there in New England. New England is known for, you know, if you go walking around, you'll find remnants of stone walls that were markers of property lines, things like that. Um, people do not survey or mark things in a S type manner. Typically um, that's not right. only how right. property is divided, not how it's really thought of uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just wild that these S shaped walls are there and that even the, even the head of one is uh serpentine shaped and has, has stones in the back that reflect light, certain points of the year.
1: They are pretty cool, and those are all known since 2016. We started discovering the first windows. You showed one a little bit earlier, and the serpentine walls. You know, we had no idea they existed, except they've always been there. We've walked by them, and there's another um, actually interesting window. It has little stone cobbles. They're mm-hmm. all loose. I did not pull them up, but I put my finger on it to see if they're loose because they're not really supporting that lintel stone on top. Yeah. We have two like that, so that that pattern repeats. But we have one like that. We call them stone shutters, and this uh, double. Uh, window right there. Uh, that's We have a number of those. And we have some with four windows adjacent to each other. And then we have some with Venetian type lines or shutters. So that one right there is my first window I found. And you can't see it in the frame, but there's two more little windows to the left and one more to the right. And that one right there looks similar. But if you look at that one with a lintel, Underneath, you see little flat stones. They're all loose under there. I call that the Venetian blind shutter. And Uh a lot of these have removable stone shutters for some reason. And that one was actually found when – and there's a stone actually put into that same one that you looked at prior. That stone right there actually is standing out of the frame to the right. And our assistant archaeologist, he's a stonemason, went to the University of Boulder for his degree. He's been involved with archaeology for 30 years and his work for almost 40. But he walked by there on the day that the History Channel was filming ancient aliens on our site. And as the cameraman came back down, he had everything packed away. I was, we were walking him back. Uh, and my archaeologist happened to be that that day. And as we were walking by that, it's just uh, kind of, you know, walking with a with with uh, cameraman uh, my, my uh, guy said, Hey, that looks like another window and it had all those little Venetian blinds in it. So unfortunately the, uh, history channel guy didn't have his equipment. Now we could have done actually right on the spot discovery. <clears throat> wow. That's an illumination right there. That was found yeah. in uh, 2020, you know, and, uh, it actually, it's a one hour illumination. We'll be watching that on the spring equinox. It, the shadow itself looks kind of interesting. It also frames the top of that quartzite white stone that's inside the watch house yeah and the watch house uh, is an interesting structure there you go a little bit further back you can see my shadow you can see that quartzite stone inside the chamber that's been talked about going back for years even Hans Holzer's book which I have uh 1992 it came out they are asking what is that stone in there does it have a purpose yeah um and we didn't know for 30 more years what the purpose was we think it's an illumination and um it starts at 7.30 in the morning on the equinox, and it goes uh, to 8 o'clock where there's a different shadow. It's on the top of the stone, and then it looks like a hand at the end of it, like a morphing into a hand light and shadow event. That chamber right there, we believe, the boulder on the right, is a head of a uh, serpent that wraps around the entire 15 acres that you showed on the lidar, comes back, does a hump just like a serpent's body, 90-degree twist with a tail pointing at us, you know. And it has humps behind there, too, to the right that you can't see because of the boulders and noise an undulation, just like a serpent. So that's 2,550 feet long. It could be the biggest serpent effigy anywhere, unless somebody has one that's bigger. You know, we haven't heard that yet. The Great Serpent Mountain in Ohio is Earth on a stone platform. We were there last summer. And that's 1,350 feet, about half as long as that one. So we might have one of the biggest serpent effigies anyway, perhaps, you know. Uh, that's our best knowledge at the, at the moment. It
0: is. It is huge. It's a. It's a. A large, large <laughs> construction. When when you're there, when you see it, um, and and this is the opposite end. Uh, way down here is is where you're talking about where the head is. Um, oh, actually,
1: oh, that's that's actually the S-shaped one, Chris, or, and that one oh. there is actually shaped like the letter. And actually, towards the right of the picture, down. Down front towards the right, you see a stone there. That is actually a triangular stone that we think is the head. Then the body disappears to the left, to the right, back to the left, ends with a little boulder 140 feet, almost 140 feet away. So uh, that's about 100. Forty foot S shaped serpent wall and that's opposite from the uh watch house that's on the near the astronomical sunset markers, you know. Well and they, you know <clears throat> the,
0: the quartzite that you're talking about is is interesting. Uh I've got a piece right here. Um and you can you can see all of the little granules in there that would reflect light very, very well. Um there's there's tons of it. And it's all over the place. Uh, But specifically, um, they're there where what is called the altar stone, supposedly by by many, many people, Um, uh, which once again is one of the many reasons that people don't really know what what this location was used for. There are all kind of hypotheses out there. Um, it is interesting how this, this grassed area right here behind it, if you look directly underneath the altar, there is a tiny little window that accesses this chamber. Um, and it, it, it very reminiscent to me of, uh, you know, ancient Greece, things like that, where they, they had, um, priests under the altars. With with megaphones, things like that, um, performing the parts of the voices of gods, stuff like that. So uh, but have, have y'all ever had that area tested um, biologically, DNA, anything like that? Well,
1: we well, um Well, we have had DNA this this last year. It was on some bones that was found uh, in the middle of the site back in 1937. Uh, We had uh, two of the bones out of the three sent up to Thunder Bay, Canada, uh, to a laboratory. And it's part of a university if they're called Lakefront. Uh, I had been used by one of my friends from the West Coast and the Paracas skulls. And uh, so he kind of helped us on that. And we sent them up uh, through customs, two samples. We kept one in safekeeping back here in case the post office should lose them or something happened. It took a couple months to get the results back. And it came back that the uh, they checked the, uh, there were related bones. They were found kind of in what we call the plaza area of the main site. And there's very, very little soil on the site. So even the first photographs in 1920, all you see is bedrock, debris, brush, but not much uh, accumulation of dirt. So why were these bones there? You know, if they were buried, they weren't buried in a like, couple inches of soil. And were they human or not human? And in 1968, uh, let's see, that would have been uh, oh, let's see, 30 years after they were found, they were brought to the Smithsonian in a woman. And that's the area you're just looking at where the bones were found, actually, just to the right of that area in that previous shot there. And um, they were looked at by the Smithsonian by a professor Lucille Saint I think her name was, and she looked at him. She studied him. She said uh, she mentioned uh, some of the uh, the densities of the bones, and also the um, hardness of the bones and their appearance. And she said, "I think these are human." But they didn't have DNA back then. So eventually, the hmm. bones were sent back uh, to us. They made it into the newspapers. Uh, possible human bones, you know, which raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of curiosity. Um, And they made it into some of the journals like the New England Antiquities Research Association. uh, And there are various stories about it. And then it kind of rested for 55 years. So we sent them up there. The results came back after two months that they were related bones, the same person. uh, And also they were um, compared to 39,354 different humans, I think. And what it turned out to be is Greek ancestry. We're like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Well, you know we don't know historically any names that were Greek, and yet this was a Greek person and it's so obviously somebody Greek was up there. We just thought we have a lot of records going back to seventeen thirty four uh with different people on the site, but that's – has nothing so it's kind of curious you know, and then how old the bones were so a, I called up the laboratory. We've been using since 1967 for our carbon datings. They're in Massachusetts. I talked to the son of Dr. Harold Kruger, and he died in 1993. He's the one my dad worked with through the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s on carbon datings. And the son has taken over the whole laboratory. And I mentioned what we had, you know, and I said, I don't know. These bones have been out of the ground for like almost 80 years um, and they've been exposed to the elements. He goes, actually, that's not a problem. And if you got DNA out of these, you know, collagen and protein and so forth, he goes, I think we can carbon date them. So he sent uh, one bone out to be carbon dated. We kept the other two that were remaining. And it took us four months to get the results back because he had to clean them, prepare them. He sent them to the University of uh, Arizona in Tucson. And finally they came back, and it came out. They were fairly recent um, uh, Anywhere from about 170 years old going back to about 1690. Oh, wow. So we had like a range. So that brought up a lot of questions. You know, why is somebody on the site dying and being left there to decompose when there's really no dirt up there? You know, I mean, who does that? So it added to the mystery of the site. But now we know they're not ancient and they're not animal, but they're human and apparently of Greek ancestry. So it's just another puzzle of the place. But we have been doing DNA um the table actually when they first found it, it was buried up to the bottom so they thought it was sitting on the ground and when they dug down they found the four legs which was quite surprising it's like a table oh with legs, wow and it's nine thousand yeah. pounds uh it's almost six feet it's by massive. nine it's massive and it has that tube you mentioned and that goes six feet through the ground to the oracle chamber and when you're standing in the oracle chamber where it comes out you're actually there's a stone step they actually left the bedrock there they Around there, and they left the steps of somebody around five and a half feet, maybe a little bit taller. I'm almost, I'm uh, just almost five eight, just a little bit under that, and I can stand there comfortably, and I can yell through that tube, when the voice comes out underneath the table. Yeah, it's kind of like the, you know, like uh, the Wizard of Oz. You know, don't look behind the curtain. The people yeah. outside hearing this voice might think it's a spirit or something like that speaking to them. You know, during a ceremony, and that table does have a deep groove. We always called it a rectangular groove on the table, and the table is bell-shaped. But that groove, we measured it uh, – I measured it in 2016, actually, carefully, because somebody mentioned it was rectangular. We went up in – it's actually a trapezoid shape. It's nine inches yeah. shorter at the top than the groove is at the bottom, you know. <clears throat> where the, uh, to the right of that table is a little runnel. And I think I took you up to the table on your visit. Yes. There's a little runnel there. Yeah, it's, it's on the table surface. It's a little – Runoff. So any fluid that gets into yeah, that groove cool. will actually run off the table to the right. And below there, the bedrock was actually removed and is actually like a cutout where either that fluid could actually go into that cutout. It also could hold like a clay vase or something perhaps to collect the fluid. Hmm. Um, it's been suggested that the table uh, may have been a limestone for making soap, but they're usually something you can pick up. They're usually a couple hundred pounds, maybe thirty-six inches across to maybe forty something. Um, maybe an inch thick in a very, very shallow, circular groove. That's the only similarities. But this stone is about 9,000 pounds and also maybe a cytopress. But uh, a cider press like Sturbridge Mass is made out of wood and steel band- yeah, you bands, would, and has a wind screw. You would and have tons of them.
0: you would have tons of spillage if you were to use that as a cider press. Um, and- my friend, my friend from Texas, you know, you're from
1: Texas, and she uh, was a rodeo star when we were talking about earlier, and she has horses. She had horses. Her her uh, parents have horses. I said, could you get a horse down there with a wagon to bring in apples if you're going to crush them? Oh, she goes, No, you can't get in there. You know, Got a person can walk in there. The table's in the way. The oracle chamber's in the way. There's a standing stone. Not in the. There's one in the background. You can see. So you're not going to come in from that direction. There's a chamber to the back right. That wall on the right, you can see, is a what? About a six foot tall ramp area right along that whole thing. Yeah. And in what you can't see towards you is another big standing stone and a desk. Yeah. There's another. The there's
0: another one of these right back on the back <laughs> side right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. where you walk in. You can't get in there. Now, now <laughs> you know? what it could be, and I've, I've hypothesized this with you on the show before, is a dressing table. Um, right, you know, right. like it's what, like, too, like right? what, yeah. what you use in hunting, uh, where, where it's a, a, basically like a big old butcher block, uh, that's made to run off the blood and everything else that, yes, you can catch and still use in byproduct. You can still use for, Making sausage, you can use for all kinds of things. Uh, yes, you could use for ceremony as well. Um, but it it highly explains some of the structures that are on property that uh, are are just kind of there. Um, once again, mm-hmm. not really connected to much. Not not really connected to anything. However, if you're talking about Using that as, you know, somewhere to put meat to dry, um, to, to create a convection of air inside of there, something like that. Um, you know, to, to cure meat rapidly, something like that. Uh, sure. Um, but it's, it's interesting because there's, it's not like there are a lot of spoils. You know, um, typically like that's, that's the, that's the golden zone for a, for an archaeologist, is hey, let's find the trash heap, you know, let's let's find out what mm. the people were eating. Let's fa- there there is evidence of like maybe about three quarters of a wigwam down near the down near the parking area, and and not a whole lot of evidence of actual habitation of the location. Correct?
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, the site archaeologically is fairly clean. If you're going to be a Working in the area where people live, you're going to find the middens, their trash, their dumps, whatever doesn't decompose, yeah. you know. And then, but like megalithic sites in Europe, it's very frustrating for archaeologists because when they get into Stonehenge and other sites, there's not that much there. There might be it's some, some remains, but what we found on our site are hammerstones, rubbing stones, stone scrapers. These were tools probably what? used in the construction of the site, left over. And we found quite a few of those. So, Stone Age what? tools. Found in the uh, in the in the debris of the site. You what know?
0: about what about flake fields like fields fields of percussive flake or chert? You know, have have y'all found yeah. that from the actual yeah. stone work being done there on location? Well, some of the stones came
1: from the immediate area. Of course, you can see the bedrock. So any little flakes, yeah. they're still there. They got washed, you know, they got moved around, picked up. Mm. But the first uh, stone that was found. Outside what we call the main site with that chain link fence covers about one acre. Uh, in 19, it was 42 years ago, a woman named uh, Mary, and she went out for a picnic lunch, sat on the side of a kind of a stone that was uh, slanted upward, like a piece of bedrock, you know. And she looked at it closely because she had been informed by uh, late David Stewart Smith, who had been with us since 1978. And David said, look for any stones that may have a serrated edge that might indicate percussion flaking, little dimpling. Also, Mm. if the stone's been propped up, maybe off the bedrock that might be an indication they're trying to get the stone detached from the bedrock raise it shape it address it and then the next step of course would be moving it wherever they wanted to do construction sure so she was sitting there having a lunch she looked down by her legs and sure enough this dimpling right there the stone's about 10 feet long maybe about five feet wide and about seven or eight inches thick and, she, and it's propped up where she's sitting she goes this thing's at an angle she looked under it. I think she saw the propping stone. So the next year in nineteen eighty three, David Stewart Smith and the state archaeologist Dr. Thierry Hume, who's still alive today but retired, he was a lithic specialist. He knew how ancient people made stone tools, the napping the percussion flaking, the pressure flaking. He was an expert in that, and he had already been doing a couple projects on our site, which is kind of strange because mainstream mainstreamers pretty much try to stay away from the site. It shouldn't really exist. But he got involved with it, which is great. He stuck his neck out, and he came to the conclusion that these big slabs, like the table you're looking at, the slab to the right, that's one of the stones you can't get by with a horse and wagon, you know, right on the right side. The, the roof slabs, the wall slabs, the astronomical alignments – and other slabs that have been found all over the 110 acres now, we have about 34 of them in C2 in their original position when they were propped up. These were actually prepared slabs of bedrock by man. And he said this is uh, like creating a, a 10 and a half or multi-ton arrowhead. This is Stone Age technology. This is not historical, colonial, post-colonial type of work. So these people were fashioning these big slabs, almost like you're a gigantic arrowhead, spear point, stone knife, that kind of thing, or even a stone shovel. You know, we have one of those on display yeah. in our museum too. So well, we have stone tools. We have the stone... Uh, Masonry, Stone Age, Masonry type techniques that were used on the site. Not, you know, 1900s, 1800s type work, you know. I think the site's ceremonial. I think it's like many of the megalithic sites in Europe, there are about 50,000. Scarabray was a living place. That's an exception up in Scotland. And then there's a place called Stanley Dale, and that was another living place. The reason they did that, they didn't have much wood in those areas, so they used stone. For the most part, they lived in hide or wood or some perishable material, more comfortable, you know, temporary things that would last maybe a decade before yeah. they rotted or two. And what you got to find is something that doesn't decompose in the ground, you know, stone, ceramics, that kind of thing, maybe some bones. But, um, at our site, you know anything that's gonna decompose the soil's very acidic, we have wet climate, so bones were like when we looked at those bones, you're like, "Wow, you know, how old are these bones?" but usually they dissolve in about two or three hundred years, and because wood yeah. rots pretty quickly, if you have a wooden tool, that's going to go away in a decade or two, it's going to be gone you know well
0: and, and <laughs> now, granted, um, I was trying to find <laughs> the the image of it i'll I'll find it as you talk <laughs> about it guaranteed um but uh, there there was speaking of things engraved that kind of stuff there there you have an interesting number of artifacts there on site um and and you've got them displayed as you walk in there in the gift shop there's a there's a little corner with all kinds of things but one of the stones specifically has carvings from another language or two other languages on it um which you know we've got about another 15 minutes with you uh let's let's spend about five or six minutes talking about that before we get into upcoming events at the location because um i think it really goes to speak to some of the age possibly of the site and uh, you know um Oddly, oddly, even even sources of construction, things like that. So let's get into the strange uh, writing stone that was found that that you have there in the museum.
1: Well, the first carving actually was found by Malcolm Pearson, and he's a gentleman that my dad ended up buying the site from. And he leased it for several years, starting in 58 to 65. But going back to the 30s, Malcolm was there and showed Mr. Goodwin the site in 1936. And then the work began in 37. And Malcolm happened to spot this carving inside the Oracle Chamber. And it was towards the uh, east side of the Oracle Chamber. Uh, It's shaped like the letter Y. It runs north and south, east and west. And on the eastern part, there was a window down there that's now an exit. It was actually a window. And right across from that, there was a carving. And he's the one that uh, at least... In historical, we know, maybe somebody back years before that started never reported it, but it was a running deer carving, they called it. But actually, it looks more like an ibex. It doesn't have a deer antler, but it does look like an animal with an antler on it. And that's the first one. And then in the 60s, other stones with markings were found in a structure called the Chamber in Ruins. In fact, three different stones came out of their triangular shape. They were put on display in our museum as unknown markings for a number of years. And that changed in 1975, when Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University first visited the site. And uh, he took one of the stones right back to Arlington, Mass where he lived. And uh, I had a translation fairly quickly in his work. um, His opinion was that it was Iberian Punic, or Phoenician that was found in Spain and Portugal. And that it was uh, a dedication to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites. And so that was interesting, you know, it's like, well, we got Phoenician. And they came back many, many more times uh, after that. And that was June of 1975. And I saw him the very first day walking up with a couple of our archaeologists up to the site. Well, this looks interesting, you know, a professor from Harvard University. Well, he also identified other markings later. And you mentioned two possible inscriptions, actually three, so Phoenician yeah. and then uh, Ogham or Oum, uh which is Irish, you know, but is also found in other places in the in, in the British Isles. It's in Scotland, Wales, and he says it's in Spain and Portugal and other places. But so Ogham, uh, that's Celtic Ogham by the ancient Celts, and then Libyan. And he also mentioned that all these people were in Spain and Portugal. It was a kind of a melting pot on the Iberian Peninsula. And he felt they were multilingual, and then they eventually launched, like Columbus did, from Spain, possibly, heading over to the New World, and then bring in these languages. But our site's not the only one. These languages that I just mentioned, these inscriptions, actually go all the way up to the West Coast. They go down to South America. The Perry stone was found yeah. in 1872 in Brazil and uh, by some slaves. And they tried to bring it to people's attention, but nobody really paid attention to much, much later. And I believe that was also a Celtic, but in a Phoenician language, talking about ships coming in with cargo. And that's just another example, but that's in Brazil. So it's not just our site. But Vermont, by the way, has the most inscriptions in the chambers up there of anywhere in the Northeast. And I was just reading it again in a book, and it reminded me, it said, also anywhere in Europe. So Vermont is loaded with inscriptions. Wow. So it's not just... So if you have a hoaxer up at our site, these uh, archaeologists like to say everything's either a coincidence, particularly with the astronomical alignments, like you mentioned earlier, or misinterpretation. It's, you know, we don't with all the data, all the evidence we have, all the different if, types if of data. If I don't you, think you had that's the two
0: or three cursory alignments amongst uh, because, you know, of course, to trace these things back, you got to go back. You got to go back to whenever you think they may have been built, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. whether or not they align at that point is, is what's important. Um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, it's cool if they align now, but if they didn't align or weren't close to aligning then, then you have a little bit of a problem. And that's the thing is all all of these alignments that you guys have all track back every one of them. (laughs) Um, That's a good
1: point, Chris, because uh, we did the survey from 73 to 77 after we started the project in 65 with the uh, astronomical research, and we hired a professional surveyor, and it took time because we paid as he went. So it took him from 73 to 77, yeah. sent that data to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Mass. We got the results back, and they said, well, if these were used as astronomical alignments, it would work about – 1800 BC, plus or minus about 200 years, due to the obliquity. The Earth's tilt is a 41,000 year cycle, and it's 23 and a half degrees, approximately. Today, but it very slowly changes. That agreed with our one of our carbon datings. The oldest one on the main site from 1971 was about 4,000 years old. So seven years later, in 78, we're getting results that the alignments agree with the carbon dating. So another coincidence, I think it's more than that. I think it shows the, the antiquity of the site. Uh, well, we have done 16 carbon datings on the site. We've got two OSL uh, dates that worked, and they were pre patty, pre-colonial, uh, two rock samples didn't test, but that was true of other sites in Connecticut. I don't know. They have problems with rock sample testing. So we have two different types of uh, dating, geological dating, actually, the OSL, because of carbon dating, and then we have the astronomical alignments showing the same time period, you know, going back to about 4,000 years. Um, and I don't think that's a wow. coincidence, you know. I think that's because that's how old the site is.
0: Well, well and that's just it. It is... Um when, when you start looking at even the fact that when colonial Americans moved into the location and asked the natives, "What's this thing that y'all built? Why'd y'all build that?" Well, that I don't know. That's been there for generations. We didn't, we didn't build that thing. Um, it, it's, it's remarkable and interesting to. Look at it to consider what its possible use was, what it was for, because once again, the the local natives didn't didn't really build structure in such a way. You know, it's not like that that is that is how they lived. They didn't build rock structure to live or anything like that. So. Nothing we um, know of.
1: You're right. Yeah, yes. they did. It was so long ago that it's been forgotten, it's but we told they America, no. build out a, they used them for tools, utensils, weapons, yeah. and then ceramics, but they didn't build stone chambers, you know, like the Flintstones yeah. kind of thing, you know, but yeah. nothing like that. You know?
0: Well, uh, well, and that's just <laughs> it. And once again, many of the chambers that are there are anomalously small. Many of them are just little like brick wall nooks that go down almost uh, – and, uh, you know, I, I think very much – uh, probably used for observation because once again, um, the site itself, whenever you go and look at it, uh, these, these are not old growth trees. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. You know, right. it's
0: not like these are yeah. trees that are like 200 years old. We um, think the hilltop
1: from a shovel test fit study that started in 92 by our archaeologist. She was the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society, and she had a husband of doc, doctor of geology at Tufts University, and he was helpful too. So he actually had – her Her husband was a doctor of that. He knows about soil and, you know, the uh, yeah. buildup of soil and bedrock. Oh. And the idea was after she did uh, quite a few of these shovel test pits across the hilltop, mapping both geological and archaeological data – that the hilltop was probably 75% bare 4,000 yeah. years ago, and then windblown particles and vegetation. Uh, decay in about 125 years on a level. Now, we got a hill, so things wash down it, so it's a slower process. But if it was a level area, it would be about an inch every 125 years for yeah. soil to build up. Um, yeah, it was an open hill, I think, 4,000 yeah. years ago with, with some trees maybe and brush, but not like it was, you know, well, as well, it is today. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, precisely. So you would have you would have <laughs> yeah. had a much more open view of yeah. the landscape. You would have had a much more open view of these alignments. They would not have been obscured. Uh, the way and that Chris, they are. Remember now. the
1: drainage system on the main site? There's underground tunnels mm-hmm. and there's channels in the bedrock. And again, with dirt, the dirt would absorb the water. But when you have exposed bedrock, with rain or snow, when it melts, would just puddle up all over the place. Well, they created an entire network of drains to deal with water, you know, yeah. and that's because you were sitting on bedrock at the time. And, you know, Chris, if you're taking those big slabs and I mentioned 34, some of them are a thousand feet from the main site. So a work in progress, I think, was going on and they stopped. If you try to move those big slabs, even on log rollers, on dirt, if the rock, they get bogged down, yeah. they'll sink into the dirt. Um, if you have bedrock, those log rollers will roll over the bedrock, you know, without the friction and without yeah. all that dirt and debris. Absolutely. So I think we're going back to that time when it makes a lot of sense to us, you yeah. know, it just logical sense, but then we have some proof of that, too, you know? Yeah, most from all definitely. The
0: well, and, uh, you know, you guys, uh, and, uh, once again, one of the most amazing sites that I have been to in North America. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh The mystery continues and you guys continue to have research done. You guys continue to um give people educational tours, all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, you have an amazing event coming up with um not just yourself, but two other guests. Uh, that we have had here on the show, uh, Ronnie LeBlanc as well as Haley Ramsey and the amazing Scott Walter. Uh, they are all going to be there on March 23rd. Uh, uh, a fantastic Oak Island mystery, uh, day of talks, things like that, a stargazing event at night. You guys put on all kinds of events. Uh, let's get into a few of those. We have you for about another three minutes. So, uh, let everybody know about the upcoming <laughs> events and what they can do to be involved and come there and check them out. Oh, sure. Yeah. We have a Valentine's event tomorrow night, uh,
1: five to seven, uh, for romantic couples to come up. There'll be a walking tour with our guy, James. He's doing a wonderful job. Then we'll have, uh, the, the the event that you just showed is gonna be an all day event at the Hill starting with sunrise right through the evening with Scott, Haley, myself and Ronnie. And there's another gentleman that joined up too. He's a New England um paranormal gentleman. He's uh he's on another banner too. His name is Chris Sanders. He's uh he's gonna join us too. So, so it's uh it's gotta be cool. Then we have the Equinox and the Equinox will consist of celebrations, drumming, and um and and again, a couple of days later, we'll be doing the event with Ronnie and all of them. And then we'll cuss, we're coming up on drumming circles. And we have some Reiki and some yoga things coming up on top of the hill, cool. too, for the summer. They've already been scheduled. And then we get into the summer solstice, which is usually one of our big events, too. So right through the year, we'll be doing all these type of activities up there. Um, and uh, I think in the fall, we'll be doing ghost hunts. But that will be in October, I think. So that's something we'll be looking at, too.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Well, Dennis, thank (laughs) you so much, as always, for your time. It is more than a pleasure to talk with you. And it is it is always great to further explore this just amazing, amazing site that is quite literally in the backyard of people. Um, I know I know people that. Every, almost every time I talk to somebody from New England and mention your site, somebody goes, what? Are you serious? Like, I pass by there all the time. It's like, yeah, you <laughs> like if, if you didn't know it was there. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much for the time. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, I'll be sending links, all that kind of stuff. Um, Let everybody know where they can go to find out more about America's Stonehenge, where they can go to get involved, where they can go to donate, uh, where they can go to get tickets, all that kind of good stuff, Dennis.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, our website is StonehengeUSA.com. When they go to our website, uh, there's a phone number, there's email. We also have an 11-minute video we show in our theater, but you can watch it online without ever coming. The other cool thing on there is a free app download. If you download that mobile app, you can do a complete virtual tour from your couch. But if you're at a site, when you're walking around, it will talk to you. It has pictures of text and the features you're looking at. It's a really nice way to tour. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. We've got over 100 uh, TikTok mini uh, or short videos. And uh, we're on Instagram, uh, so we're kind of easy to find. And uh, we're open every day, but Christmas and Thanksgiving and the occasional New England blizzard, which I think Chris, you're probably somewhat familiar with uh, being from Maine. <laughs> but kind we have occasionally, a you know. But yeah, uh, we're very, you know, we're only 40 miles from Boston, uh, only uh, about 15 miles from the Manchester, New Hampshire airport, which is a great airport, too. Uh, so, and we're at Route 93, the main road that comes, the main highway that goes right out of Massachusetts, right out of Boston. Right up into New Hampshire, into the White yep. Mountains. So uh, you can find us pretty easily. So uh, we hope to see everybody.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dennis, once again, thank you so much for the time. Uh, appreciate it. Take care. I'll be in touch with links, all of that kind of good stuff, my friend.
1: Have a good night, Chris. All thank right. you so much. Take Have care. A nice you weekend. bet. Thank you.
0: All right. While you are online, checking out everything from America's Stonehenge, folks, over at Stonehenge USA. Dot com. Make sure to stop on by Curious Realm. CuriousRealm.com is where you can follow us. That is where you can like, follow, subscribe, share, comment. That is where you can keep track of all the episodes. That's where you can find um, our events page, which is full of all of our videos from live events. We just posted quite a few uh, interviews from our live coverage from CES over there. So uh, stop on by and check that out. And of course, uh, download the all new Roku app, folks. That's right. Curious Realm now officially has our own Roku app. Thanks to our good friends at Always Press Record for programming that for us. Uh, you can find all of the episodes on our Roku app. You can also find all of my meditation music. So if you're a targeted individual, things like that, uh, Binaural Beats can be a fantastic solution for you. Stop on by, download that app, everybody. Uh, When we come back from this very, very quick break, we will be joined by our good friend, Keith Sealand, author of The Humaniverse. We will be talking about petroglyph messages, uh, what petroglyphs are, what the messages in them may mean, and uh, whether or not we as humanity are even ready for the conversation with an extraterrestrial race, whether or not they would even consider us. Um, fodder for conversation. We will be getting into that and so much more with Keith Sealand right after this, folks. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back from that commercial break. Thank you so much to all of our sponsors, especially True Hemp Science. Our good friend Christopher Lynch over there does an amazing job using an alchemical spigeric process, using the entire plant, seeds, stems, roots, Every part of the hemp plant is used to make his amazing CBD. It is the only CBD I have found nationwide that actively has a terpene profile. Great stuff. Stop on by, check them out, everybody. Curious Realm or Curious Seven is the code that you want to use at truehempscience.com to get your 7% off your cart of $50 or more, as well as your uh two count them two free edibles our guest in this segment uh keith Sealand he is the author of the humaniverse series uh the the humaniverse guide uh his website is the humaniverse.org uh, he has written a complete series of books about the hows and whys of ET contact, whether or not we are worthy of the conversation. He has been out in the last year doing all kinds of petroglyph research uh, across the United States, as well as across the globe. He recently made a trip to Egypt, as well as Gobekli Tepe. And we'll be getting into some of that this evening. Uh, welcome back to the show. Keith Sealand. How are you doing, my friend? great chris how are you Doing uh, okay wishing yous a, a very very happy holiday we got uh, one more coming up at least anyways yeah absolutely absolutely uh it's it's you know always fun going through the holiday season uh seeing uh, because uh, mainly because a lot of people release books at that time release video series stuff like that so there's been a plethora of releases from many of our guests things like that and uh, you recently went out and released a whole bunch of videos from Gobekli Tepe, things like that. Um, how, how was your trip abroad? How did that go?
2: Uh, it was, it was awesome, uh, Chris. I was very fortunate, uh, to have an association with, uh, geologist Robert Schock and, uh, his wife, Katie, uh, from, uh, Boston university. Uh, we, um, I was invited uh this year uh, a lot of frequent fire miles uh on excursions to both Egypt earlier in the year and uh turkey in um later on in the summer uh so uh again, the reason for being very fortunate is that Uh, as, as lifelong researchers, they know the ins and outs. It's, it's not, uh, a a touristy type of thing, which is not really to say anything bad against that for anybody. Any person, Mm. I highly recommend if they get a chance to do a trip like this, no matter what the platform or what the, the travel, do it, do it. But, uh, I was very fortunate with, uh, the shocks in, um, Itinerary planning and um, uh, help along the way. Any questions and answers, uh, guidance that they gave me in uh, uh, conducting and uh, planning for my research. And we had a little bit of downtime too. So nice balloon ride in um, in uh, Konya, uh, I'm sorry, Cappadocia, and uh, just just awesome. The the uh,
0: the footsteps that we left in uh, Anatolia there. Too cool, man. Too cool. I mean, uh, an experience of a lifetime, I'm sure, much less uh, as a researcher where where you get to actively go out and start using the tools of the trade archaeoastronomy, things like that, and start really finding alignments and similarities to sites that you've been to here in America and even in Egypt, things like that. Uh, let's go ahead and start cracking that nut real quick. How did what things did you start finding in Egypt and there in Cappadocia that were uh, that were similar to some of the petroglyph work that you've done here in the United States, Keith?
2: Uh in in both places, I think those are those are examples of uh, other. Human ancestral civilizations, in which uh, uh, in, in being able to start my studies on them, uh, the studies by no way complete. I'm going to be uh, yeah. taking future trips uh, to uh, both places, also, and and uh, amongst other places uh, in the world. Um, but uh, the the study is, uh, and again, to do with archaeoastronomy, and and basically the the cultures of all of our worldwide civilizations, uh, I'm, I'm uh, uh, developing the thesis that uh, with the overall purpose of charting our future, and that being a future with other extraterrestrial intelligences, we have to start planning for it now on uh, a proactive type of basis. And by doing that, as uh, our species is uh, very accomplished at doing, when we want to learn something, we study its past. Well, in this case, human beings, our ancestors uh, from from the ancients, Egypt, Turkey, uh, and, and other uh, civilizations. Um, they are us. We are them, Chris. Mm. Our DNA yeah. is their DNA. I've had this confirmed by, uh, back at my university, a, um, uh, a former professor who, uh, actually, uh, had left, uh, the, the school to work on the original genome project. He confirmed when I asked him the question, is it reasonable to, uh, assume that we can, uh, take our DNA or take uh, DNA from our ancients, and and uh, is it compatible? And he says most reasonably. So, uh, what that means is that is that we're them, they're us. They think or thought the same ways that we do today. A sig part of it is being hardwired. Our brains, evolution, the mind, and the developments, uh, the anatomical developments there uh but also their uh their uh day to day uh how'll I put this their their lives. They were our ancients were very, very observant, uh, way more so than and uh so they they learned their knowledge and they had an intuitive yep. knowledge and uh of of the environment, the world, the cosmos uh potentially interactions and experiences with uh, other intelligences, yeah. not from planet Earth. So all of that is left as the landscape and the potential mm. for us to learn from to help develop our plan, uh a plan for basically our future. And I mean, it's to say also that... Uh, let's say uh, I- I- if uh, a listener out there wants to put down the ET aspect of it, okay, so uh, then, 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 uh, you know, the question, uh, well, why would this research, why would this knowledge, why would this learning for you be uh, advantageous for you? Putting down the ET pr- uh, version of it. Uh, our ancients, our ancestors were extremely holistic. And they had uh, a very high intuitive development with uh, harmony and balance of nature with their environments, their geography and the planet. We, by today's uh, antithesis, have uh, kind of uh, 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 gone away from that holism in that harmony and that cosmic awareness. Yeah. And it's become a series of rabbit holes, both individually and all the groups that we're in. And it's starting to have physical effects on our planet.
0: And on us, while you were talking, I literally brought up the article from nature that came out in April about how traumas effects can pass from generation to generation. Keith, we're talking about like, even extinction events, things like that that can be passed down epigenetically. Like the, the trauma and the experience of our ancestors is literally passed down to us through genetics. Like that's Not wild. Yet. That's crazy that's part to think of the about. of hard wiring. And, and, you yeah. know, it's a topic that we speak about regularly on this show. Just the, how fast we as a society lose these connections. Um, the example I use regularly, I'm Cajun. I am 50% Cajun. It is one of the only cultures, aside from Native Americans, that are native to this country. One of the only languages native to this country. Uh, much like Native American languages were quashed down by churches, uh, the government, things like that. When when English speakers came in and took over the schools of Louisiana, they started putting kids in corners, making them wear dunce caps, if they spoke the language of the ignorant, if they were speaking Cajun. Um, one generation, Keith, one generation is all it took. You are hard-pressed to find somebody my mother's age who is fluent in Cajun. Both of my grandparents spoke it. It was their first language. One generation. That's all Sam. it takes to lose an entire culture. So it's not hard. It doesn't take millennia. Okay, people like these, these knowledges, even the idea, like you're saying of us be of the ancients being connected to the earth in a different way. When our grandparents went to bed, Keith, there was no electric light. If you had a fat lamp or an oil lamp, maybe you stayed up and read a book or told stories or something like that. But dude, if you lived in the country, like when it was night, it was night. The only thing you had was your connection to the stars. And if you think that they didn't realize that, hey, it gets really cold this time of year when that star hits that point in the sky, like every year, watch out. Um, yeah, they were way more connected to that than we are. You ask most people to go out and spot the brightest, quote, star in the sky right now. They couldn't even tell you that it's Jupiter. Much Often less they located and see it much less locate it. And it it is yeah. like it's dusk there's Jupiter big bright it's, orange spot most people do not know it's a planet everybody yeah. who hunted who planted everybody knew what that was and what its rising meant yeah. everybody yep. And, f- and for those of us today that I would uh, at least say
2: a uh, simple majority that can't even see physically see Jupiter because yep. of the glow of of the city that they live in. Look at any of NASA's uh, satellite photos. There's a library of them now. I'm giving you, you the applause exist.
0: button <laughs> because sorry. Yeah, I said I'm giving you the applause button uh, oh, because, okay. yes, <laughs> absolutely. Like I I take yeah. pictures of the night sky. I do budget astrophotography right. in my backyard um, but I live in the city and people are like wow how do you get that picture of Orion's nebula it's like well if you've got a lens that'll reach out there you'd be surprised but trying to see Orion like I can't see all of Orion I can see parts of it I know where in that formation of stars to point my camera um, as long as I can see three of the main stars I can pretty well nail it Um but that's because I know my constellations, I know where they are. Uh even though I can only see a third of that constellation. You know? So yeah, we we now have active efforts for dark sky communities to return things back to that point. Uh because otherwise, yeah, like our children will grow up. My cut my kid only way he knows all this is because I bring him out in the backyard and I show him with the telescope and go, ooh, look. There's Jupiter, you know. How does he react to that? He loves it. He loves it. Um, he has his own small telescope that he brings out and looks at the moon with me, things like that. Um, but it's it's something that uh, it's a fascination I had, and something that is is utterly useful if you know this the night sky and when things rise, like you can find cardinal directions. You can, you can find your way back home by the stars. We navigated across the oceans without compasses with the stars, you know? So if, if you know your star locations, you can find your way anywhere in the world. Um, and, and that's just it. Like, uh we've we've lost that not only sense of wonder keith but that sense of connection and that sense of, that urgent sense of necessity of the knowledge
2: yeah and i i'll throw i'll throw this out to say that in our culture today the uh 140 character 280 character uh, twitter world yeah or what is it called x now i guess yes um but um uh, that's just a, uh, an example demonstration of, uh, again, the rabbit holes, uh, that, that, uh, we have fallen into, uh, in society. But it's, uh, also more, uh, more profoundly to say that our, um, uh, our attention span with the evolution oh, yeah. of technology and the promulgation of it, uh, has has just eroded any uh, course of uh, of us wanting to study or uh, learning amazement or awe. Uh, I'll give you an example too. Now, I'm a member sure. of uh, the Lowell Observatory in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona and uh over the last couple of years they've uh been, they uh created uh finished building a new platform called the geovale where they have eight telescopes on it yeah now uh they always had uh they were they're very uh rich in their public outreach amongst uh, observatory uh, campuses uh so there's other things to do there but in the evening or whatever um the The attention span of people, it's very, very limited and gets more limited. Mm. And uh, another example on this uh, this uh, platform, they have, uh, I think it's nine telescopes, which is cool. you know the the, 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 the uh, viewer gets to to whatever's in the night sky to take a quick look at it or whatever. There is a uh, system. Uh, you probably heard of this. It's called Mallincroat. Uh, it's a company in, uh, Toronto, Canada, up, uh, kind of up my way a little bit. And, uh, they, do, uh, have, uh, flag, or, uh, Lowell has bought into, uh, systems. Yeah, the Godo, uh, GeoVale, um, the Open Deck. And, uh, this, um, Malin Croat system, it's a, and a very affordable for an individual, uh, combination, uh, real-time, uh, photographic and, uh, telescope setup to where uh, on the, especially on the meet the astronomer nights they have a giant uh, uh, digital television uh, screen set mm-hmm. up and the astronomer can type in uh, one of the uh, featured deep sky objects for the night and through the process of stacking as you well know yeah. uh, the, uh, the mail and croat can collect up in the course of a few seconds or a minute uh a whole hundreds or maybe even up to a thousand or more uh photos and the end end point is a full color representation of that deep sky object now the 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 pro, the ones that you would see in uh the magazines you know from uh, years ago this would have taken many 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 hours to do but our technology today has advanced to where, like I said, the individual member of the public can afford these things for their telescope. But the uh, my point was that with the immediacy and the attention span of uh, an individual today being so eroded yeah. by the immersion into the technology, even by example at the Malincrode at Geovale, people are awed. That is yeah. always the most crowded. But then they look at it for a few seconds, and then they say, "Okay, what's the next one?"
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 wonder and awe fades so fast. Uh. Yeah, yeah, Chris. It's <laughs> so so representative. It, 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 yeah, of it becomes us. so blase so quick. So oh wow, awesome! That's a nebula, millions of miles away. That, what's the next? That's one? all there is to it. Oh, okay. Like. that's 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 it. <laughs> uh, it it's
2: and and I mean our our ancestors again there were there were so much we have yeah. so much to learn from them they were so much the opposite that um, like you said they they used the the, the 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 cosmos the night sky especially the sky in general was the most important crop or yeah. learning tool or construct of yep. their existence
0: yep. Yeah, and so they it,
2: had to learn it.
0: Well, and it's the fact of multiple strata of their of most ancient societies learned it in a different way. You know, many, many of the the mother figures, things like that, uh, even even medicine women, you know, learned learned them to pass the stories on to pass along origin stories, things like that. Uh, you know, same thing with medicine men. Uh, hunters use them to explain when to go out and hunt different animals in the night sky, uh, that kind of stuff, uh, because that that's what you track the hunting and planting season with. So um it wasn't like it was just the magi of a society who who knew things about the stars, you know, like these these were the panoply of stories that inhabited their every day, everything from finding and gathering and planting food to where and when to go hunt animals, to when a sacrifice needs to be made so that the gods are appeased, Keith. Um, All of these things were covered. And and what's interesting is that all these same things are covered in petroglyph. Um, They're covered in rock art. Many of the stories, things like that, that, that's the rock art that you see, where you see people hunting animals, that kind of stuff. Um, but petroglyphs in specific are, are the ones that tell the, the, the historical part, the, the part of their history that, that is the fantastic, that they do not consider myth, things like that, that, that they consider actual reality and history, according to their people. These, these are the deep seated religious beliefs, um, gods that come and visit, Things like that. So uh, it, it really understanding this differentiation of technology in the real world is utterly the root of understanding the difference between rock art and and what's in a cave and petroglyphs that are out there at a sacred location. You know, both look very similar, but they're different things and they have different purposes and they communicate. Different things. So let's start getting into that real quick. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the
2: um, uh, one of the uh, couple of uh, very uh, most important ways of communication amongst uh, ancient uh, civilizations was um, by the glyph uh, technique or recordings, and uh, they didn't have sheets of paper. Well, they had papyrus. Some of them did, uh, but. Um, uh, by the the recordings on our, our rock art, and uh, and uh, again, I, I made the mistake. I slipped. I called it art, and I rail against that because <laughs> it's uh, actually communication. Absolutely. Uh, but but the verbal folklore story too, and and that uh, the the folklore had a very uh, very important purpose and uh, causation to where that. The form of communication was kept up for many, many thousands of years. And what I mean by that, Chris, is that, uh, as, uh, humankind developed, uh, from the, uh, uh, upper pa- Paleolithic into the Neolithic and, uh, more towards today, by those, by those times, Homo sapiens sapien. sapien uh, existed they are us we are them we didn't have to go back uh uh hundreds of thousands of years ago uh our the the, the modern anatomy was well established uh in neanderthal times back uh, 50 60 80,000 years ago our brain uh the uh our mind the neocortex had already been developed we had lost uh how will i put this um uh we gained the potential for language by losing uh, a, uh, a body part, so to speak, uh, the vestigial air sac that uh, is a product or of evolution, uh, a link of any sort between uh, the primates and the human beings. And basically, what that translates to is that you, you know that uh, uh, primates can do their screaming uh, and that's a form of communication that they use in in the, their wild, their nature, so to speak. Uh, our language capabilities were developed only when this vestigial air sac happened to have uh, been naturally selected out where there's a little bit of a remnant today. Uh, but it's uh, nowheres near like what it used to be. So that allowed for language. Uh, but my point is that in in, in the evolution of uh, the human brain, so to speak, the development, uh, the expansion of the neocortex, uh, other neurological uh, 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 phenomenon and uh, causations of, of what happened, that allowed us to develop the... Basis for the process of socialization, ritual, uh, critical thinking, ritual development to the point where, and again, this is another universal. A point amongst all of our ancient cultures, and to answer the question, they are us; we are them. This is another example of that. In yeah. that, we think the same way that they did back then. Yep. The development, uh, creation, and development of rituals is uh, was a social bonding mechanism. All the ancient cultures—Native America, the Aborigines, Egyptians, Chinese—all uh, 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 Anatolia and uh, and uh, epi, uh, proto uh, Europe—they were all humans, Homo sapiens sapien. They all developed the processes of ritual thinking and uh, throwing into that, and tying back to one of your points, Chris. Uh, the old adage, "Knowledge is power." Mm. Well when uh when the uh, agricultural uh, agrarian revolution happened and uh urbanization started to happen, uh it was a, a very big change in the culture, the human culture. Um before that the hunter gatherers were uh uh egalitarians. But when they started to congregate more and then those were populated by extended families only, yeah. and they cooperated with each other uh, during great hunts and and the acquisition of food and and uh uh learning uh again from uh, knowledge of the stars astronomy uh some planting and things like that uh there was planting and cultivation going on it didn't wasn't a eureka moment from the uh uh, uh pale, paleolithic to mm. the neolithic the revolution it was a, those were gradual processes as was the urbanization of Of uh, human cultures, and then from there, the development of uh, competition and power, and the accessibility of trade, um, as cultivation and herding became uh, into it came into existence. Yeah. there was uh, trade developed and whatnot. So the knowledge is power adage comes from some entrepreneurial types, yeah. uh, type A so to speak, that uh, knew reasoned that the more knowledge they had, the more power. So then you develop into the mythology and the uh, potential for development of religion, cosmic awareness uh, potentially the shamanistic yeah. aspects, the creation, the, uh, it, um, uh, the discovery of uh, chemical uh, stimulants for potentially some of that, but there also were some uh, real life meetings with mm-hmm. beings that they that were more, Advanced, intelligent, way more than uh, the human uh, natives were. So, and this is representative of all the cultures, Native America. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, as a result, there are two forms of communication: the folklore, uh, and the uh, the recordings of petroglyphs, especially the folklore. That was a very big product of. The socialization, the ritualization, yeah. that was part of the culture as we do today. We join communities and, and perform ritual
0: activities in the this
2: same thinking process as back then.
0: This concept is, it goes back way longer than I mean, once again, these these things are constantly being studied, restudied, refound. Keith, um, just recently, I'll pop the article up right now. Just recently in Citech Daily, it popped up. Uh, not built by Homo sapiens. Scientists discover, quote, extraordinarily, or extraordinary, 476,000 year old wooden structure. So, half a million years ago, these non Homo sapiens were intelligent enough to get together and realize they needed to build this structure together. And, and that, that, that goes once again beyond uh, y- yes, you need some kind of vocalization. Uh, you need it. Yeah, I mean, sure, a vocal sac helps you grunt. Losing that helps you grunt with intention. Um, and, and helps, helps people understand what you mean. And grunt or not, Maslow's pyramid stays the same. The psychological need of breathing, food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep. These things do not need, do not change. They are only needed more in a primitive society than they are in a modern society where you have luxury, where you can take a nap in the middle of the day if you needed to. You took a three-hour nap in the middle of the day as a Neanderthal. Man, you just missed half your hunting for the day, you know? Yep. You, you, you weren't yep. taking a nap. There was no siesta time during that. That, that doesn't, the siesta doesn't, like, line up. With that lines up with like you know uh, self actualization, love and belonging, things like that. Like those those are way higher up the pyramid than your basic needs. But even in a primitive society, you have the self actualization, the creativity, the spontaneity, the acceptance, uh, the meaning and inner potential. That's why you're able to build a building and why you want to build a building. Is because you're trying to actualize something bigger than yourself, like you said, following following that uh, like immediately following. Uh, to hey, um, comes okay. Now who's in charge? And what do we mm-hmm. collectively believe? Yep, um, yep, yep, that and, that's and, the logical is, thing. Um, even even by the pyramid, that's the logical thing.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, you can, you can, you can label that, uh, Homo sapien, Homo sapien, sapien, and it would absolutely apply, uh, f- from, uh, from our ancestors again, tens or a hundred
0: thousand, uh, uh years million, ago. Half a million, half a million years it, ago, they were getting together and building these things. So, yeah. Okay. The pyramid's 10,000 years old. All right. That ain't when it started. Like, we're talking almost a million years ago We're we're talking like when platypus walked the earth, those kind of things. So, yeah. And, and, and,
2: and right. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe tying in with uh, with a, a potential theory of um, uh, civil ancient civilizations that existed millions of years ago, but due to uh, natural processes are still buried and unac- inaccessible to us. Whereas in the future, maybe the near future, we are going to discover even some more of those. Um, as yeah. Uh, yeah, as you just put up there uh, right now, the the wooden structure. That was that in Africa or uh, a, a part of a Denisovan? Uh, I believe it may have been Denisovan. If I'm not but Nope, Zambia. Okay, the Africa. Yep, yeah. uh, uh, Central
0: Africa. Okay, yeah. that that uh, that makes sense. But but I uh, mean, once again turning the clock back. That's not like a, Hey, let's turn the clock back by a couple decades. Let's turn it back by a couple thousand years. That is like, let's turn the clock back by one giant leap for mankind. Like that's turning the clock back like a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's talking about organization as a society and, and intent and things like that way longer than what mainstream science has spoken about it before, you know? Yeah. And, um, and
2: the most fantastic part is what's yet to be discovered for all of these things. I mean, as time goes on, I'm sure we're going to find, uh, more and more things about that. Um, with, with our with our ancients and uh, again this is the uh, the logical development and uh probably we will face a similar path to progress in the future mm. when it came to uh, uh, the farther back in history and and uh, the, the indigenous had to devote more of their day-to-day activities to the very basic uh, basic structure of the uh, the Maslow pyramid, uh, in that uh, f- uh, acquisition of food, and uh, um, uh, consequently, I think uh, they didn't uh, build uh, permanent structures to where well they were nomadic, so food was the most important thing, food and, and water, and um, getting out of the uh, getting out of the um, the bad elements of the weather and climate. And, uh, you know, the potentials for there. So they had to spend more of their time with doing that. But as you can see, too, from archaeology finds, uh, especially in the way of uh, the toolkits, yeah. the weapons of hunting for hmm. our ancient cultures, as they developed of v- uh, very slowly, they developed an evolution to where uh, the mind. Of our ancients began to the, the 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 critical thinking began to take hold to where they are slowly being able to uh, um, what's the word I want to use to control their natural environment control yeah. they they were able to better uh, develop better weapons to better hunt to produce more food and as time went on they were they were that found that they were then uh, developing more and more control over their environment which uh, led to a point where the uh, the, uh, the the mind took over the development yeah. creation of ritual activities and, uh, maybe the development of the, uh, uh, upper Paleolithic, uh, Epilith, uh, Epilith and the Neolithic, uh, eventually, um, uh, came in- into being. So it yeah. was probably the two most important words, I think, in, in, in discussions of this are control and power. Mm. As, as humans developed control over their environment, the uh, power structure uh, potential was then born and as they grew and grew more control over their environment uh well you see it in the petroglyphs and yeah. uh, and um the uh the uh, rock carvings and uh, the uh, the folklore in uh, the uh attributions well i'll go back to tepe and and uh, actually uh, i'll throw in uh hoyuk and, uh, Carahan, and, uh, yes, with, uh, Native America and, um, and, uh, Aborigine. Mm. Uh, the, the development of religious icons, mm. the realization that, uh, the female being Depicted especially in Gobekli and Catalhoyuk, uh, with the bull, and in many other places in the Near East, the bull was a symbolic representation of the male of the species. But yeah. back in the uh, the um, uh, Neolithic, uh, the 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 evolution of human thought and the mind to the point where rituals were created and eventually a religion. And, uh, their, their growing control over their environment meant that they had more control and power, but still there were still elements of, of, uh, of existence that they didn't have power over, nor did they understand yeah. such as the, uh, the ending of the ice age, uh, visits from, uh, ET and whatnot. And, uh, if you want to put up uh, Sago Canyon there once again, or actually, um, uh, Horseshoe Canyon, uh, the, the, um. Uh, the ghost panel and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are, yeah, there's Sago there. Uh, so all the worldwide civilizations, uh, experienced, um, the, uh, the end of the, uh, Paleolithic with the, uh, the melting, uh, the end of the Ice Age and whatnot. So just to, 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 to bring this, uh, kind of land this, uh, this, uh, little explanation, um, the mind, the human mind, developed and discovered that they were able to, as time went on, control their environment, Mm -hmm. control their source of food, sustenance, water, and existence enough to where less of their day-to-day hours needed to be devoted to obtaining food, cultivation, agricultural revolution, and uh, herding and whatnot, they were able then to have more time to spend to develop permanent cultures, create a trade, create a, uh, a mechanism for, uh, an abstract mechanism for money. Yeah. The creation of money. All of those things, and none of them were eureka moments. They all were eventually uh, very slowly developed, but it was because of the human mind that created all of these things, and uh, and until they were able to develop the technology to uh, have printing and whatnot, uh, it was folklore and it was, uh, petroglyphs and it was, uh, rock writing and eventually cuneiform and, uh, papyrus and on from there. So, uh, and as I, uh, as I, as I end this, uh, this, uh, paragraph, so to speak, uh, our future is going to be a continuation of that because our thinking is the same way. And, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we uh, in our plans for the charting our future, which includes uh, extraterrestrial intelligences, we have to look back on the path that our ancients took to develop as a sig uh, aspect, our future mm. uh, uh, existence, so to speak. And develop the cosmic connections that uh, we've lost.
0: Well, and and we really we really have to uh, be able to take a step back as a humanity, lose some of the hubris, you know. Yes. Of of we are the pinnacle. Um, I refuse to believe we're the pinnacle when we have technologies from ancient civilizations that we can't figure out. Um, you know. Uh, if, if we were the pinnacle, then we would have an ultimate means of storage and reading that would never, ever change, you know, not, not like here's a one terabyte thumb drive with tons of knowledge from humanity. Hope I just threw it over my shoulder. Hope somebody knows how to read it in a thousand years when they find it and dig it up, you know, that's like that. That's. that's, that's what we're up against as humanity right now, you know, um, and and how do we pass it on? How do we pass on the uncture of, yes, a return to the ancient, uh, a return to understanding the world around us, understanding our direct relation to the world around us and how that is, as every ancient culture understood it, a cycle. So many yes. people had the opportunity in 2012, Keith, to understand and to truly understand what an ancient civilization thought and meant about apocalypse and the end of the world. So many people just took the term apocalypse and ran with it and said, end of the world. Mayans said the world's going to end. No, no, no. The Mayan calendar runs in cycles, great long cycles, like 10,000 year cycles. Um, Sacred geometry and and quite literally what it said and what these cycles mean, the cycle of day, a cycle of night, Um a cycle of day is the burgeoning of a technology, be it, be it, be it even something uh, like Terra Preta. We have we have uh, Jared Murphy on all the time talking about Terra Preta, dude, there is still soil in the Amazon that not because it's in the Amazon, but because it was specifically geo-engineered by the people that lived there. It's richer than the soil around it. It's a different color than the soil around it. It was specifically engineered to be so by the people that lived there. It's still better soil than what's around it. We are just now figuring this out. This is something that... Cultures in India used, cultures in Africa used, cultures in like Terra Preta is found all over the world. So what did we lose? What connection did we literally lose to the world around us that is just gone now? You know, that that for some reason we keep rediscovering our past and going, well, that's really cool. Look at that. We use manure and chemicals. They didn't. They didn't have to and the soil's still good. It's not denatured soil like what we're dealing with in the wheat belt of America where, you know, we had a, we had a dust bowl at one point because people didn't know to rotate crops. And now we're up against demineralized soil all across the country because that, that's as smart as we are is well we know how to not prevent a dust we know how to not make a dust bowl now that's a good thing uh you know mm-hmm. it's, yep. it's 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 yep. kind of ridiculous uh to to think that we are the pinnacle when we are failing on so many fronts that they far far outpaced us on far outpaced us when it came to yeah all and
2: all of that i think I think technology is is the key detriment here. In that, uh, when when we invent something, we don't have the patience with which to learn how to most effectively use it. It's the the immediacy and the the impatience to rush on to the next invention. Uh, I, uh, maybe that's that's what's holding us back. Or or my other thought here was to interject. Uh, uh, I'll just say the almighty dollar sign. Um, I Planned mean, in, in, obsolescence. Into, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Into into all of that. Um, yeah. You make you know, more money when things
0: break and they have to be fixed. You know, and, yeah, and that that just goes straight to the. The article I just popped up from uh, nobody else than MIT News. Uh, the
2: concrete. Thank you. R- that riddle was my solved. Next point.
0: Roman concrete. <laughs> like we finally figured out how they made it. There are still row and we have sewer systems all across the world that are reinforced by rebar. If those are not maintained, they will be eroded and destroyed within 50 years to 80 years. Done. Gone. Walls and eroded I- away. Roman and concrete visited- aqueducts are still pushing water to fountains from the Alps, like still to this day, not eroded, not maintained. You I know? Visited, I visited
2: aqueducts, such aqueducts in mm-hmm. uh, Hierapolis uh, in uh, Turkey and yeah. in Haran. Yeah. Uh, for those of you religious, the birthplace of Abraham. That's right. From
0: the Bible. Active, working, Water aqueduct yeah. systems. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. And that, that's just it. We we are far like the the pantheon in in Rome. Uh you know, like that, that thing getting reinforced by rebar like what we would do an arched ceiling or a dome, a concrete dome. We'd be building an infrastructure of metal underneath it first. And then pouring concrete. Nope. They just made some wooden molds and poured concrete over it and took it down and went, there it is. And it still stands to this day. You know, and there's, there's even some speculation. I I forget, uh, the, the name
2: of the scientist escapes me right now, but, um, he had done some work a few years ago about, uh, Giza, some of the pyramids, uh, mm. s- substantial parts of the structure where they actually poured at the, the, the stones actually poured and molded. Yeah, Uh, you know, created in, in that way. Maybe not E.T. moving them or something, but, uh, you know, they were poured in place, so to speak. So, uh, yeah. I wish I could remember the, the researcher's name, but, um, yeah, that just goes back to, to, uh, our ancients had the the intuition, uh, you know, yep. they did have the source of trade, but they didn't have the concept of the dollar bill necessarily, so to speak. Uh, the barter system was still was still, uh, you know, pretty uh, a big player yeah. in in those times and everything. So maybe that's the that's the uh, the uh, the catalyst for why. Uh, We have to build a new sports stadium every 20 years instead of uh, uh, building it the right way and and letting it go. Well, well, granted, um, if
0: we built things the way that they did when they built the Coliseum, we would be... We would be building it with with booty money. You know, uh, the (laughs) Colosseum was built with money from the sacking of Jerusalem and and the destruction (laughs) of the second temple. So I guess technically that's, you know, when you start tracing the money back, it it might all, you know, go to Raytheon. Um, So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, Keith, I want to thank you for your time, man. It's always a great conversation. And, uh, this, this is one of the most important conversations to me. The idea of a being able to trace ourselves back and be being able to take a step back while we do that and, and gather our humanity again and realize how important that is as we move forward. I'm not, I'm not against moving forward. With technology, AI, everything else, we just cannot lose humanity as we do it. If we lose our humanity, that's when the aliens don't want to talk to us, man. When we are no longer the genuine species that we are supposed to be, that they want to have a conversation with, you know? um, Not not all things, not all technology leads to enlightenment, folks. Um, Sometimes you have to take three steps back from the technology to find that light and enlightenment. So um man. Yeah, and it's and it's not to say that that uh you know in,
2: in looking back and learning from our ancients that we have to go back to uh mud and brick and uh uh y- you know the, yeah. the uh the out in the field ritualizations or or things like that. No, no, not at all. It's the thought processes Behind the intuition that seems to have been uh, yeah. pretty much eroded, the common yeah. sense from our society, and I, and I sincerely think—and I mean there's it's there's the uh, some thinking. potential. There's some potential proof there, uh, where uh, ET is uh, looking at us and doesn't uh, we thinks that we're not ready. Uh, in yeah. the uh, the famous Betty and Barney Hill case, in her conversations mm-hmm. with the uh, the captain, uh, he, he had told her that, uh, and this came up in, in the um, hypnosis sessions that uh, she was told that uh, we human beings are not ready to welcome the introduction. Yeah. VT on a, uh, a, a more scale. of a mainstream type of a basis. Yeah. Our technology, and this is back in 1960, and there's other examples, Betty Andreessen and, and others, uh, to where they were, the messages they were told were that, uh, y- you know, your technology is, yeah. is runaway. Uh, 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 you don't know how to use it and you should slow down on yeah. that. And, you know, because of all those things, we don't really want to make the, Acknowledged global contact.
0: Yeah, uh, we we are with you. We are basically intergalactic chimpanzees with atom bombs, Keith. That's that's what we are to any far advanced civilization. Um, And I'm not saying that we have to hit the point of the Grays where we lose individuality so that we can just telepathically talk. Um, I'm not saying that. Um, But what I'm saying is, we we as a humanity are far, 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 far from unified, far from unified, even even in the idea of, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's speech of imagine how fast um, I don't know if it'd be that fast, dude. I think there'd be I think if something landed right now on the U.N. lawn, there'd be a big protracted fight amongst nations before we ever got to the situation, man. And that's sad. Yep. That's and, and there was a very subtle
2: learning moment in the old classic movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. If, uh, in the last scene, if you notice yep. that there were representatives from all the major powers in the audience yep. when, um, when Klaatu uh, was uh, they were getting ready to, uh, to give their final message to uh, yep. Earthlings and to uh, launch again. Yep. Yeah. Uh We're a fractured civilization. And this is not to say either, Chris, that, uh oh, you're you want a one world government. No, no,
0: that's not to no. say that. That that's that's what I'm saying. I don't want the homogenization. I don't want the homogenization. I'm too much of an American to want homogenization. Everybody who came over to America that was not a First Nations people, they came over here because they were tired of people being in their business. <laughs> and they yep, were crazy yep, yep. enough to go. If I have to take an eight month journey across unknown waters to get away from you, I will watch me. And they did. Um, yep. So yeah, like you, you, you're full of nothing but crazy over here. But, but that doesn't mean that we aren't logical. That doesn't mean that we don't strive for more that we don't want for more. And we have to be willing to put our own personal crazy aside to have that bigger conversation. Keith. Um, that it's, means it's almost like a religious like we have political crazy, political crazy, not create, but
2: discover a uh, a central focus. Yeah. yeah. All of the sociopolitical nations, the two hundred and thirty. I think it's six at this point. Uh, it can change in a few weeks. But uh, but all of those are sociopolitical nations uh, to 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 yeah. as recognizing. That our species is the same, Homo sapiens sapien, that we have to find a common, unanimous common focus. That's right. With which to help chart our future. We're starting a little bit now technologically to be able to reach out and uh, maybe purpose a little bit of an economic, um, Infrastructure in space, uh, uh,
0: mining and uh, uh, resource development. Oh, and it's coming. And things like It's that. coming. We we should have a whole conversation about that soon. Um, but, yeah, it's it's wild, yep. Keith. Once again, thank you always, always for your time. Anytime since yep. I've met you that I've reached out, you have been right on the other side of the line, ready to pick up and have this awesome conversation. Uh, let everybody know where they can go to follow you to look out for the new book coming up to follow your research. Everything else, man. Yeah. Okay, Chris. Uh Yeah. Coming up uh, for uh, 2024,
2: uh, we've got the the website um, rolled out a little bit. I've got a little bit of time now. We'll be, we'll be able, Sherry and me, to add uh, some things to it. I'm very active on uh, YouTube and Facebook. I'm finishing up with the uh, the series on world uh, government UFO disclosures. Awesome. And the 2024 uh, conference schedule, I uh, am definite, will be in Los Angeles for the Conscious Life Expo in February. In March at the UFO, uh, UFO Con conference in San Francisco, that's Great. still under development. Uh, We are uh, working, uh, my uh, group is working on uh, further scheduling later in the year, uh, many different potential, many different conferences. Uh my friend uh and colleague Jennifer Stein is working with me to get me uh, out to uh Arizona for a series of conferences at hey. uh uh MUFON Phoenix MUFON. Awesome. Uh and um the uh Sierra Vista conference in May. Contact in the desert coming up at the end of May and June, and uh maybe hopefully the MUFON conference in July, Absolutely. Roswell in July and yeah. Uh, we're going to try and uh, finalize plans for a uh, connection uh, trip trek with uh, Brian Forster down in South America, Peru, Bolivia, right. to continue my um, ancient civilization, uh, ancient cultures um research
0: and uh, study and discovery. Well, fantastic, man. I'm glad to see you getting out there more and getting out in the field more with this. It is it is fantastic. I have loved your work and love following your work and our conversations outside of the show uh, since meeting you. So once again, as always, thank you for the time and thank you for your wealth of knowledge and willingness to have this conversation, Keith. That's my
2: that's my extreme hope, Chris, is to is to be able to give knowledge to
0: uh my audiences and whatnot. Let's all learn together. Exactly. Exactly. And with that in mind, everybody, while you are online learning together and learning more about the humaniverse and contacting Keith, make sure to stop on by curious realm, curious forward slash videos is where you can actively find all of the embedded video channels from YouTube of our guests, including Keith. Uh, you can also visit curious forward slash store. That's where you can find all of our guest books, videos. Uh, that's where you can find our merch as well. Uh, That CuriousRealm.com is also where you can go to like, follow, subscribe, share, comment, uh, all that kind of good stuff. That's where you can watch us live on Tuesdays. Also, where you can find all the episodes. Thank you so much, everybody, as always, for tuning in. It is your open hearts, your open minds that make a conversation possible. And without conversation, humanity does not move forward. Remember, as always, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and Stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. To download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault or become a sponsor of Curious Realm, visit our website at CuriousRealm.com. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast and video services, as well as KPNL Radio, APR-TV, and the Curious Realm app for Roku devices. Curious Realm is a proud member of the Ground Zero Media and Aftermath Media Family of Podcasts. For more great shows and members-only content, visit groundzeromedia.org and aftermathmedia.com today. Thanks for listening, stay curious, and remember, the other side is always watching.